0: The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, welcome folks, as we're in week number four in our verse-by-verse series, um, Journey Through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, let me just do a quick review of uh, where we've come so far in this journey. Now remember, it's called a gospel, and we learned that gospel is a, a word Simply meaning for the term, um, a story about Jesus. That's the best way to describe what a gospel is. It's just a story about Jesus. And the gospel is historical, but not necessarily chronological. So it's historical. What we're reading is actual history, but the gospel writers could arrange the events however they wanted to, to best communicate the theme that each of them wanted to, to produce. So it's historical, but not necessarily chronological. It's the gospel of Mark. Nowhere in it does it say Mark in the actual gospel itself. We have that title, but the title didn't come with the original document. Um, but historically, uh, we're quite certain that it was written by Mark. He wrote it in the mid to the late 60s, not the 1960s, but the first century, <coughs> excuse me, the 60s. Mark was a young man who was, had deep roots um, in a family that had deep roots in Jesus' ministry. It was uh, Mark's mother's home, and father's home, uh, where Peter ran to after he was released from prison miraculously uh, in, in the Gospels, uh, after in the book of Acts, I should say. Um, so it appears that Mark's family home was the home base for the disciples in Jerusalem. Mark was a cousin of Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Um, that missionary pair, he was a cousin of Barnabas. He traveled a bit with Paul and Barnabas. Remember, Mark kind of bailed on the first missionary journey and, and uh, went home again. And, and uh, when they were going on a second missionary journey, Barnabas said, let's take Mark with us again. And Paul said, there's no way I don't trust Mark. And that's what caused Paul and Barnabas to split. And then Barnabas took Mark and Paul went with Silas. Um, Paul and uh, Mark eventually looks like they patched things up. Because uh, there's a history in the New Testament between Paul and Mark. Um, Paul wrote in one letter, have Mark come, he, you know, he's useful to me. And also, historically, we know that Mark was a translator, an interpreter for Peter uh, in Rome. Apparently, Peter, as a, a simple fisherman, wasn't a great Greek speaker and writer. and But Mark was, and so Mark uh, was a translator for Peter in Peter's later ministry. And... Uh, and so essentially what we realize is that Mark's gospel is Peter's reminiscences. It's Peter's memory, Peter's teaching being written down in, in Scripture. So Mark's gospel is basically Peter's teaching that Mark has uh, sewn together. Okay? So uh, we uh, learned, we said it's basically in, in three acts. There's Acts 1, Act 2, and Act 3. It's one way of dividing up. The Gospel of Mark. Act 1 is the early ministry up till uh, in go- Mark's Gospel when they go to Caesarea Philippi. And, uh, and the theme of Act 1, and we're in the middle of act, or the beginning of Act 1 right now, um, in this three act drama, which is the Gospel of Mark. Act 1 is the theme is kind of who is this man? We're going to see that week after week. Mark is presenting Jesus' life and teaching and ministry, and the crowds are saying, who are you? Who is this man? Act 2, the theme is, it goes from Caesarea Philippi, then they head down to Jerusalem uh, in the last year of Jesus' life. And uh, the theme there, so who is this man? We learn he's the Messiah. That's what happens in Caesarea Philippi. Peter says, You're the Messiah, you're the, you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, Yes, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but uh, my Father has revealed that to you. And so, okay, Act Two becomes, Well, who's the Messiah? Uh, because Jesus then unpacks for the next little section of this gospel the Messiah isn't who you think, it's not some political ruler. In fact, the Messiah is going to be tortured, he's going to die, but he's going to rise again. Not at all what they're expecting. So, Act One, the theme is, Who is this man? The answer is he's the Messiah. Act 2, well, who's the Messiah? And then Act 3 is the Passion Week. It's the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem, and it's a clashing of kingdoms. That's sort of how Mark's gospel is divided up, we've learned. And remember, we learned that Acts, or Acts, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, is sort of the inside information. If you read the first 13 verses of the gospel of Mark, you know more than anyone else you're about to meet in that gospel. Everyone else from verse 14 on knows less about Jesus than you do. So you have inside a heavenly perspective. Uh, You know what was really happening at Jesus' baptism. You know what was really happening at Jesus' temptation. You have the view of Jesus from a heavenly perspective. Everyone else we're about to meet in the Gospel of Mark knows less about Jesus' true identity than you do. And that's why we get this tension. We're reading along and the disciples are stumbling. We're thinking, come on, you dummies. It's obvious. It's not so obvious if you didn't read the first 13 verses. And so the beginning of Mark's gospel, what we, last time we were together, we learned how Jesus began to establish his unique authority. And that's the theme of this act, uh, first act. Because every time Jesus is demonstrating his authority through his preaching, his teaching, his um, teaching, through his miraculous deeds, it's causing the people to say, wow, where do you get this authority? Who are you? And uh, so let's pick it up. Letter A on your outline is Jesus declares and displays his authority. Jesus declares and he displays his authority. So let's pick it up, verse one. It says, a few days later, after Jesus healed a man with leprosy, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So remember, we learned that Capernaum is a town uh, sort of on the northwest. So this is the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, down to the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's here. And uh, Tiberius is here. And uh, Capernaum is about here, right on the shore. And that's a fishing village. And that was the home base for Jesus' ministry. And uh, so Jesus is left there. Now he's come back to to Capernaum. So where he lived in in Capernaum, we're not sure. It's unclear. Possibly at the house of Peter's mother-in-law, but we don't know. Likely that's where he stayed, though. And it says the people heard. That's sort of the Greek version of, you know, word got around or news quickly spread. Hey, have you heard? Jesus is back in town. Verse 2. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So the words spread again that this miracle worker, this man who demonstrated this incredible authority previously, um, that he's uh, he's back in town, and uh, so everyone's gathering around. They're bringing the sick, I'm sure, and some of them are just, you know, hey, What's he going to say? What's he going to teach today? Now, homes are small there. In fact, when you go there, because we're going again in March of 2020. Actually, the, uh, the company that I traveled with last year, they just emailed me this week and said, hey, Darren, a large Catholic group just canceled. And do you want to take their spot in a couple months in spring of 19? But I said, no. Um <laughs> No, thanks. But, um, but we are going again, 2020, Lord willing. So join us. But uh, the homes there, you can see, they're, they're, they're laid out. It's an archaeological site now. And the homes are quite small. Um, I'm trying to look for a space to, let's say, one, two, three, four, about six by six blocks of these squares on, on the carpet here would be a kind of a typical size home perhaps there. Uh, And so these are small homes, so there's some inside. People were inside, but it was overflowing uh, outside. People are packed, gathered all around this home of Peter and Andrew, okay? And Jesus made preaching here a a priority. He's declaring his authority. He made preaching a priority. Remember chapter 1, verse 15. Um, It says, well, let me start, start at verse 14 of chapter 1 of Mark. After John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And here's the theme of Jesus' preaching. Because Mark doesn't tell us a lot about Jesus' preaching. Here's the theme. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So that was Jesus' theme everywhere he went. The time has come. And remember, we learned that that word for time... There's two main words in Greek. There's chronos and there's kairos. And chronos is where we get our word chronology. You know, time meaning one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. That's not the word Jesus used for time or the gospel writer Mark used for time. Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic. But the word here is kairos, which means an appointed time, a unique time, a special time season, okay, and that's what Jesus said, the special appointed time has come, so he said, uh, um, the kingdom of God has come, and that's the active and absolute rule of God, it's come near, and again, the word there means it's here, or almost here, so we liken the kingdom of God, according to Jesus' teaching, the kingdom of God, I said, is like the sky train. At, at the station when you're standing on the, on the platform and the sky, and you're talking on your phone to your friend and the SkyTrain is arriving. So it's blowing your hair. I remember when that used to happen. <laughs> it's blowing your hair when it arrives and, uh, but the, it hasn't stopped yet and the door hasn't opened yet. And your friend says, is the SkyTrain there? And you say, yep, but not yet. It's here, but it's not fully here. So that's like the kingdom of God. It's arrived, but it has not yet fully arrived. And we lived in that, we live in that parentheses, we learned, where the, if it's the timeline, here's the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of God, here's what the typical Jewish person thought, the kingdom of God is when the Messiah comes and ushers in the kingdom of God. Well, it's sort of like that, but not quite. We've learned that in reality, it's like this, the kingdom of darkness, the Messiah comes, The kingdom of God begins, and we live in this parenthesis, this overlap between the two kingdoms, where, yes, the kingdom of God has come, but the kingdom of darkness is still here as well. And so there's these two kingdoms clashing, and that's what we live in. And that's not what the typical Jew in first century expected to happen. So they're kind of wrestling with this reality. And we learned that the word repent means to change your allegiances, change your direction, and believe. And accept this this new kingdom. So that was Jesus' theme. That's what he's preaching here in in, uh, in Andrew and Peter and Andrew's home. I'm sure. So a few days later, uh, when Jesus entered again Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. So that's the theme that he would have been preaching somehow: the kingdom of God. And then it says in verse three and four, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. So you can picture this. He's on a stretcher, as I imagine it. And uh, since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, so there's this huge crowd outside the home. They couldn't get through. Nobody's going to give up their space and you know, to, 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 to get in to, to hear Jesus. So they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now, as your outline says, what would be a huge undertaking in a 21st century Vancouver home would be quite a simple undertaking in a 1st century home in Capernaum. So in our minds, are you, ta- you can be getting up on a roof and breaking through the roof. And that, that's huge, construction. What's a huge undertaking for a 21st century Vancouver home would be quite a simple undertaking in a 1st century home in Capernaum. 1st century homes in Capernaum were made of rough basalt stones, black stones, volcanic stones. And they're piled on top of each other. They didn't use concrete. They piled these stones, one on top of each other. The roofs were flat, made out of wooden cross beams that were overlaid with branches and reeds and dried mud. Okay, so very simple materials. And these roofs need to be replenished and rolled every fall before the winter rains came. Uh, and the roofs were sturdy, they were solid, because they'd be used for storage, they'd be used for drying fruit, and they'd be used for sleeping in the summertime as well. So what would happen is you have a you know, simple square little home, and you'd have a, a ladder which went up the side, or some of them had like official kind of stairs, I'm an excellent artist here, uh, stairs built in that would take you up to your roof, okay? So every house had a ladder or a f- actual stairs built to go up onto the roof. So this is quite simple. And it'd be very easy to break through that roof that, that through the wooden cross beams and, and the dried mud and, and the reeds and so on and break through and to lower this mat, okay? Now, rare roofs had tiles. In fact, Luke... Use the term tiles to describe this roof. But many scholars believe Luke used that term just because he was writing to Greek Hellenistic thinkers, and that's what they would think of when they thought of a roof. So he talks about how they moved the tiles, per se. Um, but literally, what Mark writes is, in the original Greek, Mark writes, they unroofed the roof. <laughs> that's literally what it says in the Greek. He, they unroofed the roof. Okay, And uh, so they climb up, And they break through this thing. Now, I've often thought of this, even as a kid, when I would hear the story. I think, like, boy, I bet they got in trouble. You know? Can you imagine? You're in your home, and what? What? What's going on? All this dust and dirt starts to fall down, and 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 I'm sure, like, what? It just happened right above Jesus. It said, so whoa, what's going on? And did Peter and Andrew and Peter's mother-in-law get upset? What are you doing to my house? You know? Jesus, tell your friends to get out of here. I just wonder, like, these are all humans. What was the thought process that was going on here? We don't know. Mark doesn't say. It's only incidental. It really doesn't matter. Well, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, so what they were doing was demonstrating faith, trust to him. So he saw their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this rocked the world of a lot of those people right there. As your outline says, the friends and the crowd are expecting a healing, yet Jesus shocks them by pronouncing that the man's sins are forgiven. So they're expecting a simple healing and Jesus shocks them by pronouncing that this man's sins are forgiven. This comes out of the blue. What, what, what's that all about? They're thinking. Now, as your outline says, Scripture affirms that disease may be caused, may be caused by individual sins. Let's uh, read Psalm 107, verse 17. Psalm 107, verse 17, says this. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. Sometimes, sickness and illness can be caused by our rebellion, by our sin. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 uh, to 30, the Apostle Paul uh, alluded to this. We taught on this 10 years ago now, when we went verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. That's the first book I ever went through here at Broadway, verse by verse, a decade ago. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 to 30, says this. Talking about the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Um, Paul writes, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. By the way, so many people misunderstand this. It doesn't say you're not worthy. It's, not, it's an adverb. It doesn't say you're... It's, it's how they were taking it. Not who they were when they were taking it. I've met so many people over the years who don't take communion. Why? Because I, I, I did something sinful. Well, isn't that what communion's for? For people who are sinful? But it says, you know, in a, if you take it in an unworthy manner, yeah, it's, the whole issue here was how they were taking it. They were getting drunk and they were, were uh, rushing to do it and weren't letting the poor people join them. It's how they were doing it. It's an adverb. It's an unworthy manner. It's not that you weren't worthy to take it. Nobody's worthy to take communion. But anyway, that's, that's for free. That's on the side. Um, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. See, you you were rushing it. You weren't doing it properly. uh, Eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So Paul's saying, some of you people are dying actually because of how you are receiving communion. Wow, that's quite a radical statement. And we don't have the time to unpack it more, but you can go back and listen to the teaching from a few years ago and we touched on that. So scripture does affirm that disease may be caused by individual sins. But that's not all scripture affirms. Also, letter B on your outline, scripture affirms that disease is not always caused by individual sins. It's not always caused by individual sins. Um, Job chapter 1 verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Yet Job is about to be afflicted with all sorts of diseases and and, and sickness and so on. Yet it's certainly not because of sin in his life. Um, Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Let me go there. Turn there with me if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Now, there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So this is a bizarre thing that Pilate did that got everybody upset. And they said, have you heard the news, Jesus? Did you heard what Pilate did? Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. So Jesus is saying, listen, do you think just because something bad happens, it's automatically God's judgment? Is it because of sin in your life? No, not necessarily. What's what Jesus saying. So, Scripture teaches both. Yes, sometimes our sin causes sickness, and sometimes it doesn't. So, you cannot just leap to this conclusion. We did a sermon series a few years ago here that we called, I think, Healing or something. I can't remember. We spent four weeks, about a month, just teaching on what the Bible teaches about healing, and we touched on a lot of this. All right, number seven. Jesus takes the holistic approach Dealing with the root cause of all disease and death. That's what Jesus does. He takes the holistic approach. He steps back and looks at all of life. And he deals with the root cause of disease and death. Number eight. It's in response to faith, a settled trust in God's ability, that Jesus will heal. That's what we see here. It's in response to faith, which is a settled trust in God's ability... That Jesus will heal. Understand this folks. Faith is not a magic formula. Okay. If I just get this faith. It's like fairy dust. And I just say these magical words. And you've got to say the right words. And you've got to say them in the right order. And you've got to believe it when you're saying it. You've got to be convinced intellectually. Of everything that you're saying. You know. Um, I, I remember when I first became a follower of Jesus. I had friends who led me into this teaching on faith healing. And. And uh, they would quote Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. And they would say, you just need to, you need to get that into your brain. And if you really believe that, then God will have to heal you. And so you know, they would be pacing back and forth, by his stripes I am healed, by his stripes I am healed, by his stripes I am healed. And, and I thought to myself, the more you say that, the more I know you don't actually believe it. If I'm walking back and forth, my name is Darren, my name is Darren, my name is Darren, you probably don't believe your name is Darren. (laughs) And so they have this concept, some people do, that faith is this magic formula, or it's saying just the right words in the right way, and the right frame of mind, and if you do that, then God has to do whatever you ask. That is not biblical teaching about healing. Faith is not tying God's hands. If I can just muster up my f- and strengthen my faith muscle to the point where it, it's at this level that God requires and demands, he has to do whatever I ask because I'm asking in faith. It, it doesn't work that way. Again, in that healing series, we taught this. Um, faith is simply a requirement, meaning that God only deals with what is brought before him. But remember, Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. So it's a requirement. You have to have faith, but you don't have to have this huge amount of faith. If you just have a semblance of faith, that's enough. God can act on that. Okay? But the absence of faith, like in Nazareth, it said Jesus couldn't do many miracles there because they didn't have faith. They, why? Meaning they didn't come to him. It's a requirement. God will only deal with what's brought before him. He can't or has decided he won't move if you don't see the need for his involvement. But you don't need to have this huge amount of faith. Faith the size of a mustard seed, which is, in the Jewish thinking, the smallest seed. Though, botanically, it's not the smallest seed in the world. But it was a Jewish idiom. All right, let's keep reading. Verses 6 and 7. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there. Okay, so they're in the home or just outside the home. And they're sitting there and they're thinking to themselves... Now remember that. They're thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus has rocked their world here. He said, your sins are forgiven. And some of these teachers of the law, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, they're sitting there and they're thinking to themselves. So they're not saying it out loud. They're thinking to themselves, why is this guy saying that? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. As your outline says, number nine, speaking as experts in the scripture, these men were correct in one sense. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. They were right. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Next in your outline. As we see from Jesus' response, he isn't merely declaring that God has already, he's not merely declaring what God has already done, Jesus is declaring what he himself is doing at that moment. So Jesus isn't declaring what God's already done, Jesus is declaring what he himself is doing at that moment. As your outline says, Jesus was claiming for himself an authority that is God's alone. A couple years ago, we studied the doctrine of of God. We studied the doctrine of the Trinity, I should say. And uh, we looked at uh, how examples in Scripture where Jesus, the divinity of Jesus is revealed. And this is one of, of examples that's often overlooked in Scripture. For Jesus to say, for me to say, based on my own authority, your sins are forgiven. I don't have the authority to do that. Only God has the authority to say, your sins are forgiven. I, you know, if um, if you look at me when I'm talking to you, <laughs> if you, sorry, you're you're looking at God's word. Yes, well, look at me. I have greater authority. Um, if you harm her, and then I say, and then I say, and, uh, I say to you, it's okay. She forgives you. You're saying, whoa, 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 time out. You can't say that I forgive her. Only I can forgive her for what she did against me. Well, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the place of God. Your sins are forgiven. Whoa, whoa. Only God can forgive sins that have been committed against him. I can't say, you know, you're you're forgiven all your sins that you did against God. I can only do that if God has given me the authority to do that. So this is what this expert in the law is seeing, and rightly so. You can't forgive sins. Only God can ultimately forgive sins. What gives you the authority to do that? So that's what he's thinking in his mind. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Immediately, Mark loves the word immediately. You know, Underline it every time you see the word, it's, the gospel's filled with the word immediately. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. So, as your outline says, number 10, Jesus demonstrates another ability that only God has to know the thoughts of a person. So, there's great irony going on here. Jesus demonstrates another ability that only God has, which is to know the thoughts of a person. Keep reading in verse 8. And so, Jesus said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. There's a reason why Mark mentions this. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Again, part of that theme, who is this man? Number 11 on your outline, Jesus uses a rabbinic, a rabbinic a Jewish teaching style called easier to harder. Uh, it's, an, it's a form of argumentation that rabbis use, and he used this to demonstrate his authority. In other words, as your outline says, if one can do the harder, then one can certainly do the easier. If I can do the harder thing, then certainly I can do the easier. And that's what Jesus does here. Which is easier to say? He's saying... If I can do the harder, if I can say, get up, take up your mat, and walk, that's harder, then certainly I can do the easier, which is to say, your sins are forgiven. Um, So the harder thing is to actually heal the guy. The easier thing is to pronounce something. Well, if I can do the harder, certainly I can do the easier. And that's sort of the the argument style that Jesus, Jesus uses here. Number 12, for the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus uses the term son of man to describe himself. Interestingly enough, this is a term that the early church didn't pick up and use. Jesus used this term to describe himself, but first century church, and even after that, we don't talk about Jesus as the son of man. Um, So it wasn't a term that really stuck with his followers, but it was a term that Jesus used to self-describe himself most often. Why is this? Well, it's a term that had two possible meanings, as your outline says. Number one, it could refer to humanity in general, emphasizing our frailty in comparison to God's power. Okay, So it could be a term just referring to humanity in general, emphasizing our frailty in comparison to God's power. An example here is Psalm 8, verse 4. Psalm 8, verse 4 um, what is mankind that you are mindful of him in this version here says human beings that you care for them um, other versions translate that they're the son of man that you would care for him so it, it, it was a term often used just to generally refer to humanity. Um, God addressed Ezekiel with this term son of man over 90 times in the God in the the book of Ezekiel. So son of man, oh son of man, it it's, can refer just to humanity in general. But as your outline says, as used by Jesus, it clearly is pointing to the figure in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Let's turn there. It'd be worth turning there because Jesus alludes to this Daniel figure a lot. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, Verses 13 and 14. In this vision that Daniel has. He says. In my vision at night I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. The the father. And was led into his presence. He was given authority. Glory. And sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the Son of Man, That the term. So Jesus took that term, describing this prophetic figure, and applied it to himself. So this is an individual who comes with the clouds of heaven. He receives authority, glory, and sovereign power from the Father, and he establishes an eternal kingdom. So Jesus doesn't use this term, Son of Man, as a way to blend in with the rest of humanity. Jesus uses this term, Son of Man, to set himself apart from the rest of humanity. As your outline says, number three there, until Jesus used it, it was not commonly associated with the Messiah. So it didn't carry any political and militaristic baggage. That's why Jesus used it. Until he used it, it wasn't commonly associated with the Messiah, the Son of Man term. So it didn't carry any political or militaristic baggage. Remember, we've already learned that in the first century, when they were waiting for the Messiah, he was a political figure who was going to come in the line of King David. He was going to overthrow the the secular rulers of the world, restore Israel to its rightful political and militaristic uh, place and restore Israel as a leading nation again. And so Jesus, initially in Act 1, avoids using that the term Messiah, even though he is the Messiah, because their understanding of what that word meant was so clouded, and plus it would cause a political revolt and give the Romans a reason to come in and squish him and kill him uh, before his ministry got off the ground. So he avoided that term initially because that term was so filled with all this political baggage um, that wasn't true. That's why act one is, who is this man? And finally they realize, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, but the Messiah isn't necessarily who you think he is. And act two is Jesus unpacking what the Messiah is. So instead, Jesus used the term son of man, referring back to this figure in Daniel chapter seven. It says, next, he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. That's a subtle statement of triumph to Mark's first century audience, as your outline says. In a cultural context where honor and shame were supreme values, the doubting religious leaders would have lost face in front of the crowd, as the man's exit provided vivid testimony that Jesus was right and they were wrong. So that's why Mark points this out, because the first century readers, readers would understand this. this. is They would have lost face, these religious leaders. Jesus says, you know, your sins are forgiven. And they're thinking to themselves, how can you do that? How can, how can you say that his sins are forgiven? And uh, Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. Which is easier, for me to say it or for me to, to, to heal this guy? Which is a sign that his sins are forgiven. But because I want you to, wanted you to see that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, then here's what I'll do. Take up your mat and walk. I'll do the harder, which proves that I have authority to do the easier, which is say your sins are forgiven. So the guy miraculously stands up, picks up his mat, so he carries what previously had been carrying him, and he pushes away, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, walks through the crowd again, and everyone's thinking, Whoa. And I'm sure they're all looking at the Pharisees. Whoa. Now what? You know, what are you going to say now? Number 14 in your outline. Once again, things conclude with people essentially wondering, who is this man? Okay. They're saying, where does he get this authority? And this is what the, the, the case for Jesus that Mark is building in the act one of his gospel. All right. We're stopping there. Let's open it up for any questions uh, from this week or last week, because when I concluded last week, nobody had questions. Yes? <laughs> um, sure. Can you describe to me, um, like you spoke of Jesus, you spoke of God, but you didn't exactly say who God is? Okay. Sure. Understanding what, is? My understanding of who God is? Yeah. Okay. So, God is the greatest conceivable being. Um, So, if you can think of a being greater than God, then that being is God. God is the greatest conceivable being. Um, Scripture teaches that. Scripture teaches that God is spirit. Okay, He's not flesh. God is spirit. So, God's not this elderly man with a long beard sitting on a, a golden throne somewhere. God is spirit. And God has revealed himself as Father... Son, and Holy Spirit. So God has revealed himself as one being in three persons. In other words, here's, it's, now he's different from us. We're human beings. God is an eternal being. He's the, the creator being. He's the greatest conceivable being. We're human beings. The difference is the rule of thumb for a human being is one person, one mind per soul. So you have a soul, and you have one mind per soul. That's the rule of thumb for humans. So I can't say, hi, I'm Darren, and I'm Steve. No, there's one mind, one person per soul. That's the rule of thumb for humans. But God's not like us. God's a completely different class of being. And the rule of thumb with God is one soul, which is home to three minds, three persons. Okay? Not three physical entities, three minds, unembodied minds. Minds that t- are one being made up of three minds. And what Jesus is, is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. So the, the, one of the persons, one of the minds of God added to his mind human flesh and for 33 years, roughly, lived amongst us and then died. And, uh, and so and when he came to earth, he then, though he was equal with the Father because they're one, he willingly submitted himself to the Father and said, I'll only do what I see the Father do. And then after he finished his work on earth, he then sent the Spirit to then act on his behalf. So, um, do I think God is in each and every person? God is uh, present everywhere, meaning he's able to act everywhere, but God does not have a personal relationship with each and every person, no. That's something that uh, God offers to each of us, the opportunity to do that, but uh, that's something that has, our sin separates us from God. So, that's what Jesus came to do, to offer us, Um, the opportunity to experience that relationship. Now, that doesn't... Just a second, I'll keep... um, But but we're not talking about value. So we believe that every human being um, was designed to experience and express the purest love imaginable. Okay, So that means that you are worth. You have intrinsic value like no other being on earth. As a human being, God created you in his image, has great love for you and value, values you so much. But your sin and my sin has separated us from him. And so that's why Jesus came, to, to cleanse us from our sin, to allow, allow us to experience his presence again. I can talk to you more about it afterwards if you like. Yeah, I've got other questions. I'll chat after. Yes, John. yeah you yeah you can be in physical presence of someone and not be in relationship with that person yes I skipped that one, didn't I? i do that on purpose to see if you're following. (laughs) 12.4, it worked perfectly for Jesus since it was a title that Jesus could fill with his own meaning. Talking about the Son of Man. It worked perfectly for him because he could fill that title, Son of Man, with his own meaning. Thank you. Other questions? Let me look to my right, your left. Uh, Any questions over here? Back to my left. All right, folks. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. We'll continue in this series next week. God bless you.